Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy, and in today's episode, we are talking all things fertility. I invited Dr. Danielle Lane on the podcast. She is a highly regarded endocrinology and fertility specialist. I first found her on Instagram because she is a TikTok star, and she was sharing some of her TikTok videos on Instagram where she offers really valuable information and demystifies the fertility fertility experience and the treatments around fertility through these really informative yet fun videos that will definitely make you smile. So I reached out to her and she was gracious enough to come on the podcast and we talk about everything from when to take that first step to reach out to someone like her and her answer to that might surprise you. We also talk about what the experience might be like when you first reach out and that first visit. She talks about treatment options, and we also explore some of the emotional and relational experiences for individuals and couples who are going through the fertility journey. We talk about the important role of advocating for yourself when it comes to seeking fertility support and options for same-sex couples. I'm so excited to share this conversation and episode with all of you, so let's dive in. listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, mom to three, and I support mamas just like you who want a supported, loving, and rested postpartum so that you can flourish in that first year with baby. In this podcast, I'm sharing my conversations with perinatal experts from around the world and with parents who've been through it. While I hope that this podcast is supportive to you, it is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed health provider. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, Dr. Lane. I am so grateful to have you on the podcast to talk about fertility. This is a subject that I've had so many requests to talk about, but I'm just so grateful to you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you. Well, it is my pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about this. I mean, it's kind of what I live and breathe. So happy to answer any questions that you have and provide insight to your to your guests. Yeah. So first, can you share a little bit with us about your background and your context and the work that you do for anyone who's meeting you for the first time through this episode? Yeah. So I am a reproductive endocrinology and physician. Um, I did my fellowship here at UCSF and uh, stayed in the San Francisco Bay Area, and um, we uh, started a private practice. I say we because, you know, fertility is such a team. Um, you know, me, I have an embryologist. I have a team of clinical coordinators. Um, and so we, you know, our practice has been around since 2009, taking care of women both here and and, and from afar. I mean, we've seen patients as far as China, and we've seen, you know, we see patients as close as down the street. Wow. And um, we we generally think that what we enjoy the most is making sure that people get a better understanding of their fertility. And so, you know, not everybody's going to do treatment. Not everybody's even going to like, you know, unfortunately be successful with treatment the way they would like to be, you know, like to yeah. have with their family. But I think one of the biggest frustrations that patients have is that they just don't understand what's going on in their body and why they're not getting pregnant. And, and so I think we spend a lot of time on education. 
I'm also very committed to access, which is a harder conversation because quite frankly, there's just, you know, there are certain expenses around fertility that we're not able to overcome. And so I think we're struggling with that constantly. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And, and speaking of access, what the way that I found you was through Instagram because mm-hmm. you put together these amazing, informative TikTok videos where you are <laughs> dancing while really spreading some really valuable information about a topic that we need more light shed on, which is fertility. So can you first, first ex- help me, help me know, understand, like, how did you get into creating TikTok videos it. about fertility? Because I love them. So I have five kids, um, four of whom fall into the category of teenagers. <laughs> so literally a year ago, right? Because can you believe we've been at this for a year, oh this gosh. whole lifestyle yeah. that we now are in? Um, so, you know, to protect our very existence. So, you know, a year ago, I'm hanging out in my house with now five children because, you know, my son and my daughter came back from boarding school and you know, the people that were supposed to go to college didn't go to college. I mean, you know, we're all just sort of in this small San Francisco sized home. And my four, then 13 year old, 14 year old now, it was dancing at the phone. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, why do you keep dancing at this screen? And, you know, she kept saying TikTok, TikTok. I'm like, what is, t-? you know, I, I mean, when I tell you I was not on social media, like, I didn't have, I had an Instagram account because my kids started it. Like, you know, it was not even opened up. Yeah. Really. Um, it was private, you know, I had like five pictures on it. I mean, whatever. Anyway. Um, so she eventually convinced me that I should like, you know, look at this TikTok app and I thought, all right, fine, whatever I did. And I noticed that there were actually physicians on the TikTok app, TikTok talk app, giving information. Now, the only reason that didn't surprise me is because, you know, I mean, I guess it did surprise me, but if you think about it, social media has been a way of, of communicating with people, um, and connecting with people for many years now, but I hadn't really thought of it in, in quite the context that, you know, that it's being used for now. And so I sort of noticed that there were some people that were out there giving this information. And at first I thought, gosh, well, I don't, I guess you don't need more people to give the information. But then I realized like much of the things that occur in the world of fertility, it was a pretty non-diverse group of people that were giving out information to, you know, um, a very limited population. And I thought, well, let me just give this a whirl and see how it goes. And what I found is that even though sometimes I felt like, you know, um, (laughs) that I had just seen a TikTok with similar information in it, um, or I felt like somebody literally just repeated the same TikTok that I did, it didn't change the number of people that needed the information. One, because Mm -hmm. I think that when people recognize that they're hearing the same thing from multiple different sources, it gives them some sense of validity. And two, I think the other point is that different people follow different folks on, on Instagram and on TikTok. And so the people that I found myself speaking to were not the same people that were following, you know, some of my colleagues from other places around the country. So that's how it started. And then I just sort of felt like, you know what, this might be an effective way of communicating with people. And so I kept doing it and I'm also slightly competitive. So now I just have these, like, you know, these goals of, of, of numbers that meet, that mean absolutely nothing to anyone who's out there listening. I mean, it means nothing. So don't do it to yourself. But um, I'm always like, well, maybe if I could just figure out exactly what people want to hear, then I'll, you know, then, then I'll be able to tell from the number of people who view it. I mean, I don't really think that's how it works, but 
I do think it's really helpful to be able to spread that information. And as in terms of Instagram, I just repurpose it there. I don't yeah. do content because who's got that much time in their day? No, but, <laughs> no, that's, but, why, that's why I'm not on TikTok. Right. I should, I should get on TikTok and just repurpose things over there, but haven't gotten oh, that right. far yet. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, that, and you know this, right? The, the, the um, demographic is different for yeah. TikTok and Instagram, right? And so um, I find that, you know, and you can't communicate on TikTok really. I mean, people can leave public comments and you can kind of do DMs, but it's harder to communicate on TikTok than it is on Instagram. And so I get a lot more questions on Instagram. Mm-hmm. People really reach out and connect on Instagram. You know, people ask for appointments on Instagram. On TikTok, I think they just watch the video and, you know, keep going. So anyway, however, however it helps people, that's sort of the goal. That's amazing. And you dance. And like, I will find myself just watching your video. I'm like, just watching you dance. And it just like makes me smile because sometimes you dance with your daughter and you're smiling and I'm smiling back and I've got those mirror neurons going. And then, and then you're, you're like hitting me with like really valuable information. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a therapist that specializes in everything from fertility to postpartum. And I am learning so much just from these amazing dance videos that you are sharing on social media. So speaking of making it accessible, um, and, and I totally agree with you. I, um, I do coaching for therapists that are looking to modernize their practices. And one thing I'll always say is, you know what? Everything's been said and done, but it hasn't been said and done by you. And that's your superpower. And there's somebody out there who's looking to receive this information in the right. way that you're going to deliver it. And that's what you're doing. And that's amazing. I love yeah, it. No, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, the other piece of that, that is, is true is that people always feel as though um, getting started is really hard and finding the community of patients or in your case, clients that, that you're going to work with is really hard. And the truth of the matter is like, there's no magic to it. You know, one of the guys that I worked with at one point for learning how to do Facebook ads, because I didn't know how to do Facebook ads, was like, you just have to do it. Like you literally just have to get started. And so yeah. I think I agree with you for the people that you're coaching, you know, I mean, they, they do always feel like, oh, somebody's already done this or, oh, somebody, else. you know, you just have to start and do it. And, mm. and you are your worst and own worst enemy on topics like that. Always. Oh my goodness. It's so true. So yeah. true. Okay. Let's dive in about fertility. Yeah. First question here. When should someone consider talking to someone like you about fertility? Like when, when do we take that first step? You know, I think it's a, um, I think it's, it's not as straightforward of a question as, as, as people think it is. Yeah. There are ASRM guidelines that sort of say, if you have been trying to conceive and you are under 35 and it's been a year, it's time to go get an evaluation Yeah. from 35 to like, you know, um, 38 and it's been six months, it's time to get an evaluation. Right. When you start to get, you know, into your forties, it's, it's like immediately it's time to, you know, consider an evaluation before you start. But I think the flip side to that is, and whenever you feel like you need information, mm-hmm. right? And that's the part where I think it's a little bit less straightforward. I think I don't want everybody to feel like they have to go run and see a fertility specialist. Like that's not necessary. And most people are going to be able to conceive on their own without, you know, without ever even crossing the threshold of a, of a fertility specialist. But I also want people to recognize that like they don't have to wait to be given permission to go see a fertility mm-hmm. specialist. And I think that's the part that is still um, concerning to me when I communicate with people, uh, online and through social media, because, 
you know, there's a bunch of people out there saying, oh, well, you know, I, I, I would love to go see somebody, but it hasn't been enough time or my OBGYN hasn't referred me or whatever other thing they say. And it's like, you don't, you can go anytime you feel like you need information. A lot of insurance people, a lot of people will find that their insurance company covers it. And for those that don't, you know, the peace of mind is probably worth a couple hundred bucks that you're going to spend, you know, on on this process. Right. And on sort of knowing that everything is as it should be. And that maybe it's okay to just go back and try or make some mild adjustments to your, um, you know, lifestyle or whatever it is, right? So I think that's the answer. I'm so glad that you are sharing that because I can't tell you how many times in working with clients who, you know, they haven't reached that year mark, they haven't been trying for a year or they, or whatever the guideline is and that they've heard or what their doctor has said and, and they're suffering, right? Like they, and, and just being able to, like you said, to go and talk to someone, there's so much when it comes to fertility that feels like it's out of our control. Right. And so what I'll oftentimes talk to my clients about is, okay, well, what are some things that you do have agency around? And one of those things is who you go and ask questions to and what support you receive and, and, you know, taking that, being proactive about that. And I love that you answered that in the way that you did, because it kind of, reinforces this idea that if if you feel like going would be supportive to you then and, and if that's something that is accessible to you then then you can do that yeah I think it's super important I think that as um, I, I talk mainly from the voice of, of women because I am a woman but I think you know as women and frankly as patients we must be better at advocating for ourselves mm-hmm. you know we just we have to do that um, because there's <laughs> It's, it, there's no one who's going to do that on our behalf if we don't. And so right. I think that's, that this is the first step to that. And, you know, and you're going to have to do it as a parent and you're going to have to do it, you know, <laughs> for your own parents at some point, probably like, you know, I mean, other yeah. people in your family, like, so, you know, just, just try, start, start mm-hmm. now. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay. So can you demystify the fertility journey a bit for us? And okay, I know that the experience can really vary greatly for everyone, but Let's say someone is listening right now to our conversation and maybe they're scared to take that next step. And I just would love for you to share a little bit of what they might expect if they walked through your office doors. Totally. So the one thing that I think has um, made life maybe a little bit better is that a lot of times those initial appointments are now on Zoom as Mm -hmm. opposed to on, um, you know, in, in someone's office, right? Uh-huh. And there's a little bit of inefficiency to that, in my opinion. I mean, I think we can get a lot more done immediately in the office than we can on Zoom. But the flip side is that just like people feel comfortable with me because they've seen me dance on Instagram, which is actually kind of funny, but that's cute. <laughs> I um, but I get it, right? They also feel more comfortable after they've had a one-hour Zoom consultation with you. You yeah. know what I mean? And so for the most part now, um, if people want to, we're always open to that, you know, initial Zoom consultation as are most fertility uh, practices. It's not just mine. So I think one thing is that you might, that it's different is that you might now find that your initial contact is, is, is through a platform. Mm -hmm. So 
the benefit of that is that we're just going to have a conversation. We're going to talk about sort of who you are and where you are and what you've been doing, right? And that often feels a lot less agitating, is my experience right now, than if, you know, someone's in my office, half-dressed on the table, like, wondering in what way I'm going to poke and probe them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which, yeah. by the way, I don't, I, I don't think really happens. But um, so, so if you end up going in for your first appointment, then what you probably should expect is that here's what we want to know. We want to know, is there sperm? Are there eggs? And does your uterus look normal? And, you know, obviously we want your history, but that's what we're going for in terms mm -hmm. of you know, the, the procedures that we do, right? And so that's going to involve a semen analysis and a transvaginal ultrasound. Like, that's it, right? Yeah. Um, so if you've never had a transvaginal ultrasound, the probe is, I always tell people, um, this is this is sort of the non-PG part. It's smaller than a penis. So for yeah. people that have had intercourse, um, you know, um, and, and, and so it's probably about, and you know, if not, it's, it's smaller than most dildos. Right. So, you know, it's going to be about maybe two, uh, inches wide, if yeah. you will. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, not even two inches wide. That's an exaggeration, maybe an inch and a half. And it goes into your vagina to the top of the cervix does not go any further. You will feel pressure, but typically you will not feel pain. Mm -hmm. And if you feel pain related to a transvaginal ultrasound, that's often, um, you know, sort of a red flag for us because now I'm thinking about folks that have endometriosis or is there anatomically something that isn't where it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Um, so most people, just some pressure and, and it's definitely a new and odd sensation, but it's not usually associated with pain. And from that, our goal is to look at your ovaries and get a sense of what your antral follicle count is, right? Mm -hmm. and, and an antral follicle count is, of course, the number of follicles that we can see in the ovary where every follicle holds an egg. Mm -hmm. And we have some idea of what we expect as a stimulation response under the most aggressive conditions. And what that tells us is, you know, for age, is your body biologically appearing the way we expect it to, right? Yeah. Or is there some evidence that there's ovarian aging or an excessive number of follicles, right? All of which can have things that we can address, but we got we to know what we're dealing with first. And so that's essentially from the female side, what you can expect, history, a transvaginal ultrasound. Mm -hmm. From the male side, you know, it's history and a semen analysis, right? The semen analysis is always going to be read the day it's received, but you probably won't get the results back on that same day. You probably will get the results back, you know, in our clinic, it's at least three to four days because we have to do what's known as morphology and look at how the sperm appears. Not just are they there and are they moving, but like, do they have one head or two heads or two tails or one tail? Mm -hmm. um, so semen analysis is what we're looking at in men. And then there's a handful of lab tests that we usually will do. Um, the ones that are for diagnoses tend to be in most cases on the women. So we're looking at thyroid levels and we're looking at um, the antimalarian hormone level. Um, and we're looking at your prolactin level, the other things that could change your, you know, menstrual cycles and make fertility a little bit more challenging. And then um, for guys, if there's an abnormal semen analysis, then there's a panel that we'll look at. But typically um, the semen analysis is usually in many cases sufficient. And then finally, um, we uh, we want to, you know, if we're doing treatment, there's there are a series of labs that we often have to do uh, around infectious diseases. And so, you know, with those tests, ultrasounds, semen analyses, and that history in hand, now we're in a position where we can actually, you know, make some treatment recommendations based on what we have found.
And that's what you should expect. That was so incredibly helpful. Thank you. I feel like you just walked me through your office doors. I wonder, Dr. Lane, if you could describe for us some of the fertility treatment options that are available and the various goals for these different fertility treatment options. So, you know, look, we either can uh, use oral medications or injectable medications to, let me back up. The goal of ovarian stimulation is either to make you ovulate if you're not ovulating, think your polycystic ovary syndrome patient, or to increase the number of eggs you release with the premise being that somewhere in there, we're not getting a healthy egg fast enough, and it's therefore taking you longer to conceive. So if we can get you to release more eggs at once, we can shorten the window of time to conception. That is is like the basic premise of what we do, okay? So the only ways we have to affect ovulation are through oral tablets like Clomid, or letrozole, otherwise known as Femara, mm-hmm. or injectable gonadotropins, and so think gonoleth, Falstim, or Minipurex. That's it. It's all we've got, right? Yeah. Um, and so for women, you're either taking a tablet or you're taking a shot. And the difference between the two is simply how effectively they increase the number of eggs that they release. So, you know, a tablet which uses some of your own brain's hormones are not gonna, is not going to release as many eggs as an injectable will, right? Yeah. That's fundamentally the difference. In terms of men, we either can take that sperm and, you know, time dinner course, which I already told you doesn't do much unless you've got polycystic ovary syndrome, intrauterine insemination where we're taking the sperm and putting it in the uterine cavity, or some form of in vitro fertilization where we've now taken the eggs out of the woman We've mixed sperm with them in a dish or injected sperm into each egg. And then we're putting embryos back, tested or untested down the road. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's all we've got. Yeah. So in fertilization is kind of like the, um, the, the, the opportunity to optimize the most things. Intrauterine insemination is somewhere in the middle there in terms of optimization. And time dinner course is what you're doing at home. Um, and, and so what I was saying is that, you know, we have gotten away from using some of these, uh, aggressive injectable medications in the setting of an intrauterine insemination, because that's really how John and Kate got eight. Right. And yeah. we know we can't control, I mean, literally that's how they got eight. Yep. And we know we can't control it well enough to, to, to prevent that from happening. And so that's why I was saying there's a lot more conversation around, you know, if oral medications and easy stuff aren't working, then it, you should feel comfortable to think about going to something more along the lines of a vitro fertilization because it's not really meant to be a last resort anymore. It's meant to be a treatment that can optimize your outcomes in a way that's probably going to save you money and mm. save you time. Right, right. Because time and all the different tests and all the different options that you might be utilizing before that is going to be costly as well, correct? Very costly. And that's the challenge, right? So Mm. it's sort of being able to think through the whole paradigm and say, okay, while I could do this, it may end up costing me more in the long run in terms of both time and money because I'm going to have to do it so many times because the pregnancy rates associated with it are so much lower. Right. That makes a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you. I think that's helpful because, yeah, yeah I mean, somebody who's listening might be already in the journey themselves, right? Um, and so these these words, IUI, I, I, you know, Clomid, like all these things might just be very um, normal words in their life right now, right? Um, but maybe there's someone listening who's 
hasn't taken this step yet. And I just want to, yeah, kind of demystify it as much as we can um, and even some of the options. So I appreciate that. Okay. So what are some of the common myths that you see floating around about fertility that you want to debunk for us right now? Oh gosh. I think the one that makes me the most psychotic is that like, if you, you're not ovulating and you take birth control pills, ovulation will occur. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so yes, uh, you cannot stimulate ovulation with birth control pills if you have polycystic ovary syndrome. That, that's one that I can't stand. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Um, I don't know, myths. Uh, I think the other thing is that people have this perception that IVF is a silver bullet. And so like, you know, mm-hmm. if everything else fails, we'll go to IVF. I don't, I don't think that's how we should be thinking about fertility treatment in 2021. Mm. Um, I think it's no longer like a last resort treatment. It's, it's really fully been established to be an effective um, and more efficient treatment than many of the other things that we have out there. And so, you know, I, I think I'm going to, I know everybody's going to say, Oh, the cost, but I think it needs to at least be considered um, um, more in more of an upfront manner than what I often see. Hmm. Um, I just, for example, did a, a, a video on unexplained infertility. That's another thing that people get caught up with. So unexplained infertility just simply means we can't detect what the problem is. I mean, clearly there's a problem. No one's doubting that. Yeah. But many times the, the problem has to do with ovarian aging. And while we can detect that it's happening because you're not getting pregnant fast enough, um, we, we can't identify it, you know, it on a blood test yet or on an antral follicle count yet, right? Because right. we don't have longitudinal data um, and the tests are not sensitive enough. But, you know, so people like to um, try and do a whole bunch of uh, pers- um, uh, treatments around that that are ineffective. So, you know, um, oral medications alone, not particularly effective for improving outcome in your unexplained fertility population. Mm-hmm. Great for polycystic ovary syndrome, but not so much for for, for unexplained infertility. IUI alone, like if you don't have a sperm issue, then that's not going to solve your problem, right? Um, and we're much more likely to be able to detect that sperm issue than we are that that egg issue that's really subtle that we can't get a number on, right? Um, and so I think making sure that you're using appropriate treatments, which I guess is not really de- debunking a, a, a myth, but- No, but that's, I think that's what you're saying here that was really helpful. And I actually, I think that you shared a, a video on this um, that I wanted to kind of touch on is, you know, the experience for the individual and the couple. And a lot of times people feeling like it's their fault. Um, maybe, um, you know, maybe I think that maybe your video was about women sort of blaming themselves or kind of feeling like it's their fault. And maybe that's one of the sort of myths, right? That it's, it's, I think that a lot of people think that a fertility issue is their fault. The reality is fertility, you know, I mean, this is our biology. Like there's nothing, one, there's no way for us to predict it because for most of us that are alive at the time when we would have begun to actually predict that we had an issue, we didn't have the ability to do it. Right. Like, so I'm 48 be 49 in June and you know, I mean, I have five kids. My first kid was in residency. My last kid was when I was an attendant. And it was really hard having kids in residency, like, you know, going back to work after five weeks or three weeks or whatever crazy thing it was. But here's the thing. We didn't have egg freezing. So, and nobody was embryo banking. So you can't really beat yourself up about those things because like, we didn't, we didn't know. We couldn't do it if we wanted to do it. You know what I mean? 
Um, We didn't have Invacel, which is a much lower cost option for doing IVF. So, you know, people had to wait until they could afford treatment. So, I mean, I think that, you know, blaming yourself for biology and, and, and frankly, just, you know, um, where the industry was and its, in, in its ability to help people is, mm. is, you know, energy that you will not have if you're going through this journey. I think that's the way to think about it. Ooh, and energy is such a big piece here. I mean, in on yeah. what I see in my office, right, are the families, the the part, or sorry, the partners or the individuals who are coming in and and sharing, you know, that they are they are either in it or anticipating it, and then once they are in it, then there there's the load that they carry with that, and it can be oh. a long haul journey for some, and for yeah. some it isn't, right? But I think there can be a burnout that's experienced in the process, and obviously so many other painful feelings and emotions that can come can come in that. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that kind of shows up in your office and, you know, what I think, I think hearing from a doctor, right? Like how does this, how do those feelings sort of show up in the office for you? And then how can individuals and couples kind of navigate some of the, the burnout and the, the just exhaustion that can come from the process? Well, I would have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is, I think it's a myth to think that anybody who goes through fertility isn't struggling. I mean, that's a myth, right? Like yeah. it's a struggle for everybody, you know? And and I, I will tell you that, you know, and we love the work we do, but there are days when we end our day and we are, we are drained because of how much we have held other people during this mm. process during the day, right? Yeah. And we're just holding them. Like we're not like, we're not living it, you know? Right. So I think don't go into this thinking that you'll not experience some, you know, emotion around it because I, and and I, and it particularly shows up in our very, you know, um, professional women that are in spaces where you don't get to show emotion. And like, this is one where they can't work harder and make it go away. Right. Because That's what we're used to doing. I mean, that, that's how we were trained. You go to school, you work really hard, you, you know, you'll get the opportunities, you have to work harder than the men because, you know, I mean, you know, but that doesn't, it doesn't play out here, right? Um, You know, there's no, there's no benefit for, for, for beating yourself up more or (laughs) work, you know, eating, eating more air or drinking more water. So I think that's one thing. I think uh, there's a program called Boston IVF out on the East Coast and um, unless they've changed, they... I, I believe they still really require women to go and men um, to go through some at least initial therapy session when they start mm. their therapy. And yeah. people get offended. They're like, well, why do you think I need this? And, but the truth of the matter is that like it has been shown in studies that folks um, get through this process better if they have some support. I mean, frankly, I think we all need therapy, at least here in the Bay Area, right? But uh, you know, really, because like the lifestyle that we've chosen is challenging. And part of that is what gets many women to this, right? I mean, we have cho- chosen a lifestyle where, you know, we're traveling all over the world. We're like trying to exercise, run a career and, you know, and, and do all this stuff at the same time. I mean, we're just, we're, we're still one person. So um, I think having a space to share that is what makes, you know, your field incredibly valuable to ours. I, I cannot tell you that I'm particularly successful getting people to do that. I think mm. they often feel like, you know, I'm their therapist and I'm quick to tell them that, that, you know, I'm not right. Mm-hmm. Um, I will always lish, listen, but don't, yeah. don't confuse empathy with therapy. Right. right. Um, but I think the last point I'll say is that I, there are very few couples that are on exactly the same page 
during their fertility treatment. So mm-hmm. don't 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 think that you're outside the norm. You know, when you're ready to go to IVF immediately and your husband's like, oh, let's wait three more months. Or, you know, you're like, I don't want to do IVF. And your husband's like, but I want a baby on this schedule. You know, I mean, that's pretty typical, you know, yeah. and those are two extreme examples. But um, I think that's that's important for people to realize that there's going to be emotion to this and that um, you, you, you and your partner may struggle with sort of how you want to approach this. Oh my gosh, I see I see that so often the impact that it can have on the partner relationship um, when they step into into this journey, um, the fertility space. And you know, and it's it's not all it's not all bad and tough, right? There, there are I've definitely worked with couples where this has really um, brought them closer, right? They're in this together. Um, but it can also put a, a burden on the partner relationship. It can impact in intimacy for sure because intimacy can be a trigger and intimacy can feel now like a a job right and it's scheduled and gosh it can have an impact on so many different levels for for couples and so it's so nice to hear you say that therapy you see therapy um and as being an essential part of fertility journey, right? Because, you know, and I love that you said, don't mistake empathy for therapy because it's it's so important to have a provider that can hold that empathy space for you while you are walking through this with them. But therapy can be a really pivotal part of that process. I agree. And I mean, I think to that point, that's another myth that people have. They feel like once they've gotten you know, started with a certain provider, they've got to stay with that provider forever. And, mm. you know, I got to tell you, you need to be in a space where you feel like you are having as positive an experience as you can during this work. And if you aren't, find somebody with whom you can have that because mm-hmm. this is hard enough, you know, without thinking, oh gosh, my provider's not listening to me or oh gosh, they were so mean that day or cold, and which, which probably one had nothing to do with you and two <laughs> had, you know, everything to do with the, 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 you know, sort of the impact the work has had on them. And if it's not working for you, go someplace else. Like, it's just not worth it, you know? Oh, my gosh. That's such good advice. And I love to hear that from a doctor because it's such good advice. And I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier about how important it is to be able to advocate for yourself. Um, But I think that I know from my clients as well just how common it is to feel like, well, I've already started with them and they know the history and we've already done these initial tests or we've already done some initial – taken some initial steps with this person, but I just don't feel like – supported by them and but they just stick with it because they just they're they don't want to start over again right they've already been waiting and there's so much waiting that already happens in this fertility experience and so they don't want to wait anymore and so they stick with a provider that just isn't the right fit so I really appreciate that you said that you know, I, I think one of the things that has happened in our industry, and you know, this is a little bit less about the patients, but it's but it's critical for patients to understand, is that um, there has been this influx of um, investment into the fertility industry, and I'm talking like venture capitalists and private equity folks, and and they have a goal, and their goal is, you know, maybe uh, to some extent to optimize. And by the way, I'm not anti this at all. I, I think this can be very beneficial for some yeah. reason. 
But often what happens in the process of figuring it out, and we've been trying to figure this out for a decade, I mean, literally this process has been going on for a decade, is that the practices get bigger and the time per patient gets less and the desire and demand of people to see return on their investment gets higher. And so what the patient feels is I'm one of 3,000 cycles this year, right? Mm-hmm. What the doctor feels is, oh my God, I'm trying to figure out like, how do I get through all these people and take good care of them? And then you know, and, and in the middle of that, there are all these people, like there's the clinical coordinator and then there's the like medical system and there's the, this person and that, and it just feels like this huge monstrosity of a system to the patient who's having one of the most intimate experiences of their lives. Yeah. And if that is working for you for some reason. And it doesn't even matter what the reason is like, maybe it's working for you because your best friend went there and she told you she had a good outcome and you can believe in that. Or maybe it's working for you because like you really connect with one of the nurses there. And you know, how, if it's working for you, great. Okay. Or maybe it's working for you because it's $0 and zero cents because you have a great insurance contract with that person, with that. Yeah. But if it's not working for you for any reason, like do not think there aren't other options out there. I mean, there just are, you know, Mm. Um, and it's worth it to pick up the phone and try and, you know, reach some of these other clinics and, you know, because just because you have the biggest market, biggest marketing budget doesn't mean that you're going to be the best fit for everybody. You know what I mean? And, and, Right. And, and, and again, like not trying to knock anyone, like we definitely, you know, I'm, we're not like, I'm not, you know, I, I understand how business works in the world of fertility and we have figured out how to carve our own space. So we're not like naive to the concept, but I'm just saying as a patient, you've really got to look past all of that and figure out, you know, what works for you and, and, and get through this process with as much, um, you know, advocating for yourself as much as you can. It's just so important. Mm. Oh my gosh. And it's, and I think, again, just like reinforcing the idea that there is going to feel like so much in this process and experience that feels like it's out of your control. And hey, this is something that you can reclaim agency around is the advocating Absolutely. for. And your, should. Yep. And should. Yeah. Okay. So when I shared on Instagram that I was going to be interviewing you for the podcast, I had some special requests and I had a request. If you could um, speak on some of the options that members of the LGBTQIA plus community who are ready to start a family could take, what are some of the options for that community? So I think, you know, first of all, that's a, that, that is a very broad group of patients with a very broad group of needs. Um, and, you know, certainly we see um, a range of those needs here in the Bay Area. Although I got to tell you, some of the, the major- some of the patients that I see that fall into this population are actually from all over the world. Because in most places in the world, you don't even have the option of building a family, mm. right? If you're not a yeah. heterosexual married couple. So we can discuss that separately. But it's such a treat to be able to yeah. bring people from around the globe to a place where that option exists. So um, I think um, the biggest barrier for these patients is money. I hate to say it. Mm. Um, And the reason is because the minute you're missing either egg sperm or a uterus, there's cost involved. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. And so um, I I think one of the, the sort of pain points is that, you know, hey, we're living our lives, we have our relationships, and now we have to pay for this service because there's no other way for us to build a family, which, you know, I think is, 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 is a bummer. And most of the insurances are not particularly receptive to that either, but you know, that's getting better. So there's that. Um, If you are a single male or a same sex male couple, that relationship looks, you know, or you have sperm, but no egg, right? So there are other ways you can get there. 
um, that um, that process is, is going to necessarily involve an egg. So you're going to need some form of a donor egg. And it doesn't matter whether it's like your sister and your partner sperm or whatever, whatever permutation you do, yeah. you're going to need a donor egg and it will be considered a donor because it's not in the eyes of the FDA, your sexually intimate partner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're going to need a uterus. Right. Yeah. So in that setting, the biggest barrier becomes cost. Mm -hmm. um, eggs are getting to a place where you can find ways to uh, afford them. So, for example, we now have an egg bank and we opened our egg bank for a variety of reasons, diversity being one and cost being another. But instead of having to pay for an entire egg donor to go through the cycle, you can just buy a group of eggs, right? Yeah. Um, and if we already have those eggs on our bank and we are then going into a transfer, we, we can make it even less expensive, right? So my point is find somebody who's got a niche, niche in that doesn't have to be me. There's a lot of people um, that that can help bring down your cost. If you have a family member or a friend who's going to be providing you with um, tissue, right? Eggs, same thing if it's sperm. Mm-hmm. Make sure they're a good candidate before you start sinking your emotions into that process, right? Mm -hmm. So in yeah. other words, an egg donor that's 40 years old, they might be your best friend and they might have every quality that you want in your, your egg and they're 40. It's just not a good fit, right? So I think in this, um, in this case, it's, it's, it's beneficial to kind of get at least some guidance early on about ways in which you cannot spend money that you don't want to spend. Yeah. For um, women that are seeking sperm or individuals that are seeking sperm, okay, the challenge there is that a lot of people don't want to go to a sperm bank and just like, you know, buy a vial, right? Yeah. Um, there's some there's some pleasant detachments to that that make it, you know, easy, but you know, it it it's, doesn't feel for a lot of people uh, as though it's the way in which they want to begin the relationship with having a family. Right. So again, there's a lot of desire to use known sperm donors and it's the same thing. You, you, it's worth you having a conversation on that because here's the thing. If you buy a vial of sperm, that's it. It's one vial of sperm. It's already tested. You know that you've got a good count of sperm, you know, and, 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 and. If you use your, you know, your acquaintance down the street, right, or wherever you met your acquaintance and that person's sperm isn't good, that's going to be really expensive for you. And because they are a donor, same thing. They're not sexually intimate partners with you. You're going to be paying for them to be tested to meet FDA standards every single month, right? Mm -hmm. So while it seems like maybe an IUI would be a great idea, by the time you've paid $1,000 for testing and $500 for an IUI, every single, you know, and whatever for an ultrasound every single month, like that is not cost effective either. Right? right. So it's important to understand those numbers up front and realize that, you know, sooner than, for example, your heterosexual couple who at 35 may wait for a year because it's costing them nothing to have sex. You may want to make a change much sooner than that because it's costing you $2,000 a month. Do you see right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Um, I think Invacel is a great thing that's come to bear for, um, um, for, for this particular conversation, because many times the women that I'm seeing for their own autologous fertility that are heterosexual are actually older, right? They've mm -hmm. age is the biggest factor that we see here in the Bay area, not true of the LGBTQ, you know, yeah. population because, um, they're often like just 
try to start their family from the get-go, knowing that there's going to be, you know, a need for uh, additional, um, you know, assistance. Yeah. Um, and so I think the sooner they come in, the sooner they're able to, um, you know, the sooner they're able to, like, really address things like Invisal as a pro- as a process because it's less expensive. Um, it will allow them to get to the same outcome that they want. It doesn't mean they have to do this big fancy IVF cycle. Often they don't really care about what the gender is. Like they just, the things that they need um, don't require some of the crazy high tech stuff, but maybe require something more practical than $2,000 a month for IUIs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, this I don't think that was helpful enough or if there were more specific questions that came up. Because again, it's such a broad population. Yes. I mean, surrogacy is the worst part of all of this because, you know, surrogacy is exorbitantly expensive. There's just no two ways around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot get around around surrogacy unless you're using your own known surrogate for less than $100,000. And wow. even if you're using your own known surrogate, you know, you're in it for legal fees and you're in it for an escrow because you live in California and you're in it for IVF because you got to put an embryo into the surrogate. Nobody's doing traditional surrogacy with the uh, surrogate's eggs being the same as the person who's carrying it. So you're probably still in it for 50000 You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's not cheap. And I think that's, that is the biggest um, dilemma that folks run up against. And the flip side is, I guess this is one of those places where I don't know if you can be cheap. Like, I don't know if you can be cheap when someone's carrying your baby. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have an answer to that one. You know, I, yeah. I feel like I got a lot of answers to a lot of things, but I haven't figured out a way to make that short of insurance, which doesn't seem to be doing it cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's okay, Dr. Lane. You don't need to have all the answers, you know, because I think that there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people who could use it. Oh my gosh. No, this is absolutely helpful. I mean, I think that, um, my, my thought is that the person who's listening to this is, is just beginning to explore what their options are. And I just think you are laying out these answers and giving language and take like lifting the veil, right. Of what this experience might look like, um, which I really, really appreciate. Okay. So, where can people find you so that they can, like me, um, really enjoy smiling at while learning from you <laughs> when when I'm watching your stuff on social media? Is so, social media the best place for people to find you or where can people find you? Yeah, no. So I'm going to say one thing before I tell you that uh, yeah. about uh, this conversation uh, of, of, of broad populations. I think it's important to make sure that you um, find yourself for the purposes at least of delivering your baby in a state that is going to be um, that's going to be welcoming to yeah. all broad family groups, right? And, and that's one of the reasons why California has gotten so much attention um, for surrogacy and for egg donation and for you know sperm donation and because we really are very receptive as a, as a state. Never mind a country, but I think that's the other piece that you got to make sure you're someplace where you're going to be protected as a family. So yeah. that's my last point on that. Um, and there are plenty of people who can help you with that. Um, so, you know, at every step of the way. Um, okay. So uh, social media, uh, Dr. Danielle Lane is my Instagram handle. It's also my, you know, TikTok handle. <laughs> There's a Facebook page and Facebook group for people that are interested in doing some of the things that we talk about. Um super um, committed to making sure that folks know about Invisal and can access lower cost options that are affordable and effective for IVF. Um, and so there's a Facebook group on that on our Facebook page. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, our website is Lane Fertility Institute. So we're there and you can, you know, reach out there. People send me messages all the time. I try and get back to them within a day or so, but sometimes it takes me a couple of days. Sorry, I can't answer them all. But anyway, but we're always happy to answer questions and, and, and point people in directions. I mean, if you're someplace and I know somebody that's there, I will definitely tell you because schlepping to California doesn't work for everybody. Um, and, you know, it's got to be easy for you, right? It's got to be easy for every person. Oh my gosh. Okay. I will put links to all of these places where people can find you in the show notes. So if you're listening and you want to go find that Facebook group or you want to find Dr. Elaine on TikTok or Instagram, you can go to the show notes and I will share links to all of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Elaine. This was such a pleasure to get a chance to have this conversation with you. And I'm so excited to share it with, with others. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope that, uh, I hope that everybody gets something out of the conversation and, you know, always happy to come back if there are more questions. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to hear when new episodes air. Looking for more support? I teamed up with a board-certified OB-GYN to bring you two e-courses for expecting and postpartum parents. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Thank you so much for inviting me into part of your day today. I'm so grateful, and I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.